death. <laughs> why, why do we want to talk about death? Um, well, because it's the next, uh, the next element in the order of uh, the blessings that God applies to us as part of our salvation. The order of salvation, we've gone through election, calling, regeneration, conversion, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance. Now we come to death and the intermediate state, and then next week will be the last item, uh, glorification. Uh, the question is, why do Christians die? And that really raises a little bit of a problem for us in our thinking, because haven't we been forgiven for all of our sins? Doesn't Romans 8.1 say, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, if there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, then <clears throat> wasn't sin the punishment for death? Well, if the punishment, all our penalty for our sin has been paid by Christ, he died for us, then why do we die? That's a little bit of a puzzle. I think we have to say we, that death for us should not be seen as a punishment, not as a punishment for Christians, because the penalty for our sins has been paid by Christ. Rather, it must be that God in his wisdom and in his sovereign good, good pleasure has good purposes for us in allowing us to go through the experience of death, and, and I suppose leading up to death, aging and death, we should say. Well, one point is that God, even though he's forgiven us, he still lets us live in a fallen world, and death is, is the final outcome of living in a fallen world, because even though Christ has paid in his, in his, in his death for us, he's paid the penalty to, to, to earn this perfect, perfect uh, fullness of, of salvation with all its blessings, all of those haven't been applied yet, so death isn't yet removed. 1 Corinthians 15, 26 looks forward to the future when Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So that's the last thing that God's going to wipe out in terms of the consequences the consequences of sin in our world. And we, we do still live in that in, the, in a fallen world, and so um, we get sick from time to time. Um, when there are hurricanes or tornadoes or forest fires, sometimes Christians are harmed by those as well as non-Christians. I mean, we just, we just live in this world that's fallen, and God hasn't removed us from all the consequences of living in such a world. That's one thing. The, second, the, the next thing is, point three here, God uses the experience of aging and death to complete our sanctification. And we have to go back a few weeks to this stage of sanctification. It begins at the moment we're born again, but then it continues throughout life, this gradual growth in likeness to Christ. And if it continues throughout life, then as we come to the end of our life, this experience of aging and death is a process in which God is still working. And he continues to work to, to complete uh, our growth in likeness to Christ, to complete our sanctification. So um, there are some encouragements in the New Testament uh, to believers to, to continue being faithful to Christ, being obedient to him, trusting him right until the point of death. Revelation 2.10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into the prison 
into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you'll have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So there's an encouragement to one of the seven churches in Revelation, be faithful unto death. And here in Philippians 1.20, Paul, Paul is in prison. He's in prison in Rome. He doesn't know if he's going to get out or not. But he says, it's my eager expectation, Philippians 1.20, and hope that I will not all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So whether I live, I want to honor Christ in everything they have, or if I'm put to death, I want to honor Christ there too and not be unfaithful. But right to the end, he wants to persevere. He wants to, I suppose the phrase that we've heard a lot lately, he wants to finish well, even to the end of his life. And... Um, uh, I'll just, I'm, I mean, there's, there's, a little, there's a little more we could talk about. I think we may have uh, more passages here. Let's see. Well, Romans 8.28 is certainly true that um, God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And I think we have to say that, that includes all of the events that occur up to and including the point of our death that God will use that for good in our lives and to, uh, to draw us closer to himself, make us more like him. Um, do you want to talk about that for a minute? Um, aren't there challenges as we grow older, as we experience illness? Aren't there challenges, but aren't those also opportunities that God uses to grow in our faith, grow in our obedience. What do you think about that? Neville? Is there a, is there a, where's our microphone here? I just think, um, I, my, my wife, Laura, and I have been in, uh, in business for 20 years, and our business has specifically dealt with uh, seniors. And it's really interesting to me, and it has been, to see how the perpetuation about it's all about me mm -hmm. continues yep. with certain people, mm -hmm. um, specifically about death, because um, they sp I'm hearing more and more over the last few years about I have a right to terminate my life. Mm. And that tells me distinctly it's all about me. Yep. And it's not about the glory of God and how God can use your, your demise process to his glorification yeah. and to those around you. Yeah. And I see that quite, I'm seeing that more and more these days. Mm -hmm. I see it as a, as a uh, cultural, um, as a cultural, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Yeah, kind of a shift. Or a, yeah, yeah, a shift, yeah, yeah. absolutely. That's yeah. what I wanted to yeah. say about that. Yeah. Okay, anything else? Anything else? Sandy? Wayne, don't you, uh, well, or my thought is that death and the ravages of disease and uh, the ravages of aging, uh, if you will, make the reality of sin uh, very sort of in our face, up mm -hmm. close and personal, mm -hmm. and it's 
a constant reminder that we're creatures, mm -hmm. that we're not yeah. the creators, we're not the controllers, we're not yeah. the the wannabe deities that we act like through most of our lives. That 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 we are creatures, beloved creatures in mm -hmm. Christ, but but creatures. And in fact, that list that you had up there with the different topics, uh, you know, and redemption and justification, and next week glorification, and you had death in yellow. As I was looking at that, it occurred to me. Death is the only one on that list that will be experienced by every single person ever born on this planet. Hmm. Yeah, we, um, do not, we do not avoid it. I mean, we? until the Lord comes. Yeah, but, right. Yeah, yeah and, and I think death is just a reminder of how awful sin is because mm -hmm. we certainly live in an age that minimizes sin. Yep, but we see that the consequences of Adam and Eve disobeying were really profound. Yeah. As you're talking, Sandy, I'm just thinking, too, that um, as we become older and we realize that there are some things that we can't fix and can't solve, then it does drive us, it either drives us to kind of anger or bitterness, or it drives us to more trust in the Lord and more dependence on Him. Margaret and I have noticed among some of our extended family, for instance, as people have gotten older, they've become more like Christ. And I, saw, I think of a, one or two particularly older faculty members at Trinity that I watched as they grew older and then they retired and then eventually died. And there just was a sweetness about them, a Christ-likeness about them that was a magnification of the good qualities that were theirs uh, earlier in their life. And, and we've, we've, oh, I was thinking of Margaret's mother particularly as well. As she uh, grew older, we were seeing a kindness and a gentleness that was, I think, evidence of Christ working in her life. and, and um, and I'm actually, I'm, I'm seeing some of that in my own parents as well right now, who are, who are in their 90s. Well, they're 91 and 90. So yeah, yeah. And that's a, that's the positive thing. Over uh, here. Yep. I yep. have it. Laverne. Hi. Um, well, you know, it says in the Bible that um, God knew us before, you know, we were ever conceived in our mother's womb, and as the as the egg goes into the womb and it's very comfortable in there, it really doesn't have any need to come out, but it has to come out into this world, and that becomes us. And as we go through this world, we have to pass through this next stage, which is called death, to go to the next world, whatever yeah. that world is, to, if we believe. And so, to me, it's like a process of, you know, this is how God had it planned, and death should be looked at as if we're in a new birth to the next stage of what God has yeah. planned for our life. So everything that happens to us here, as it does in the mother's womb, yeah. is going to make that child healthier as it comes out into oh. this world. And as we go through this world, it'll make us healthier as we get to the yeah. next world. It seems like it's kind of a neat thing to let happen. Yep. Good. So. Good. Okay. Good. Well, look, I mean, this is a... Well, Sandy says we're we're all gonna face this, and um, just the clock is ticking, and we're, it's getting close, and we can kind of fight against or become angry, or we can say, Lord, I believe as Romans 8:28 is true, you have good purpose in all of this for me, and I believe I'm going to walk close to you through this, and there's going to be joy and fellowship with you uh, through this, and uh, and that you have good purpose. Uh, in, in this, and then that's a really positive way of looking at uh, the next uh, 5, 10, 15, 20, however many years God gives us in this, in this, in this life. And so um, I'm going to talk more about that in a minute, but 
the, the Bible's perspective on aging and death for believers is so much more positive and, uh, and, and in a way wonderful, though death is seen as an enemy, and it's not wonderful. But, it's, but, but, but God being with us through that is so much more positive than unbelievers who are just um, uh, without God and without hope in this world, as Paul says. Well, number four, our experience of death completes our union with Christ. Romans 8, 17, if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be also be glorified with him. There is more experience of suffering as we grow older. Just uh, the, the things that go wrong that can't get fixed and uh, the increasing weakness and you don't, you know, last Sunday night, I ha- we were going Monday morning going on to, to Maryland and um, I, for one reason or another, a lot of things had happened during that previous week, and we had graduation and everything, and I, so I didn't get, I was up finishing my grades and finishing getting ready, I didn't get to bed till 2 in the morning, uh, Monday morning, and we had to get up at 4.30, because we had to leave at 5.30 to get the airplane, to get out to Baltimore, etc. I used to be able to do that. <laughs> But let me tell you, I didn't snap back the next day or the next day. I was still feeling weary. Well, what is that? Um, okay, so so Paul's, and that wasn't, I wouldn't call that suffering. I'm just saying I'm realizing that my body doesn't doesn't work like it used to. doesn't recover as much. And so, um, so we suffer with Christ in whatever way, if we can see, all right, Jesus, you went before me. You suffered and died. You prepared the way. You sanctified the way. I walk with you through this. Oh my goodness, what a transforming perspective that gives us on all the experience of, of uh, aging and suffering and eventual death. First uh, Peter 4.13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And I think in that case we say, well, Lord, you're going to bring me through this, and I thank you for it, and I thank you that I'm going to rejoice at the strength you give me and that you walk with me through this and you bring me through it. And so I look forward to rejoicing uh, uh, when, when you return. Number five, our obedience to God is more important than preserving our own lives. Now, Look, we do not live in a, a country or a society or a period in history where we're challenged to sacrifice our lives for the sake of our faith. But many Christians have throughout many points in history, and many Christians are at that situation even now. And I hope that never happens in our country. It doesn't look likely that it'll happen, but we don't know the future. We don't know the course of events, and we don't know where circumstances might bring us at one point or another. And so for all of that, it is good for us to fix our minds in advance on this perspective. Acts 20, 24, Paul says he's going to Jerusalem, different cities, people are telling him he's going to suffer in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit is revealing to him he's going to suffer at Jerusalem. And he says, I don't account my life of any value, Acts 20, 24, nor as as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. It's like he's gotten this assignment from the Lord, and he read it, and it said, Paul, I want you to testify to me among the Gentiles, every place throughout the Mediterranean world, every place I send you. And Paul says, I'll do it. I want to be faithful. All right, you're leading me to Jerusalem. That's part of the assignment. 
I'm going there. My only concern is that I finish the, the responsibility you've given me. I want to be faithful. I want to finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord. That's all he wants to do. And uh, Neville, it's the opposite of what you say you're seeing kind of in the secular world. It's all about me. I have a right to this. I have a right. Paul doesn't say that. He says, the only thing I want to do is finish ministering for the Lord, finish caring for him. Bob, here you are. I'm not going to say how old you are, but you're not 30 anymore. <laughs> and, and you're saying, what can I do for the Lord? And that's the, that's the perspective. I think that should be in all our hearts as he opens up opportunities for us. If I can finish my course, just the ministry, whatever God gives me at this point, at this time. And I realize not everybody's going to be teaching a class, but there are people you know who need care. There are people in your neighborhood, people in your area of influence. There are people in your extended family. There are people that you know you can pray for, and there are people that you know you can minister by phone, and there are people you know that you can bring a little snack to and care for or ask how they're doing or spend time with them. We all have areas of influence where we can be giving of ourselves to others, and we should have this mentality, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. And so uh, in Acts 21, Paul's uh, visiting the uh, the elders at Ephesus, and he says, "I don't think I'm going to see you anymore. The Lord's shown me that I'm going to be in prison, and I won't see you. I won't see your face anymore." And uh, and they began to weep. And Paul said, "What are you What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus." His obedience to God was more important than preserving his own life. Once you settle that in your heart, then anything else smaller that the Lord asks for you is not too much. Here again, other passages. Paul, this is the last thing he wrote, 2 Timothy. It's, I think he'd, he'd gone to prison in Rome. He'd gotten out. He'd traveled more, preached the gospel in more areas. <clears throat> then he was put back in prison again. And 2 Timothy is the last thing he wrote at the end of his life. He says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. That's kind of Old Testament imagery about this drink offering being poured out to the Lord. And, and, and the time of my departure has come, and he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Don't you want to be able to say that? Don't you want to be able to say that? Whatever you gave me, Lord, whatever you called me to do, I did it. As, as you gave me strength to the best of my ability, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. That's the goal. That's what we want to set for ourselves. If it becomes more challenging as we grow older, as it becomes more difficult as death approaches, well, then we just trust God that he'll give us strength. Revelation 12, 11, They have conquered him by the conquered the enemy, Satan. They've conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives, even unto death. Our obedience to God is more important than preserving our own lives. And I've heard people say, Oh, I read these stories of martyrs, people who went, they were burned at the stake, they were uh, uh, put in prison and tortured, and they, and they died, and they say, oh, I'd never be strong enough for that. You know what? I suppose all those people said that before that time. I bet they thought, oh, who am I? I'm just a little ordinary Christian. But at the moment of need, God gave them strength. Uh, when their, if their hearts were right before him and they continued to pray, and he gave them strength and, uh, and equipped them. So how should then, okay, so that's number one. Why do we die? God has purposes in the, 
in the, in the leading up to the end of our lives. Number two, or B, how should we then, how should we think of our own death and the death of others? How should we think of this? How should we approach it? Well, our own death, this is just opposite to the world with all its wealth and inventions and technology and medical advances and Mayo Clinic, where are you, Keith? <laughs> you're, you're with me, I know. Uh, there are things that can't be solved. Um, I saw him bring in refreshments anyway. All right. <laughs> okay, yeah. Uh, but he's, he's generally right over here someplace. Well, I mean, with, and I say Mayo Clinic because it's in this area, but it's kind of the ultimate expression of the greatest medical technology can, can, um, can accomplish. But I've never heard of anybody who's gone to the Mayo Clinic and they've given him eternal life. <laughs> It just, it just doesn't happen. So, um, so what do we think about this? Our own death. Well, we should think of our own death not with fear, but with joy at the prospect of going to be with Christ. Philippians 1, 21 to 23. And again, this is Paul's earlier imprisonment, but at this first imprisonment, he, he didn't know if he was going to get out or not. But he said, well, whatever happens, it'll turn out for good. So for... To me, to live is Christ, that means service for Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Good, I'll be able to serve the Lord more. That's great. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. So Paul's saying, whoa, here I'm in prison. Are they going to put me to death, throw me to the lions? Well, I get to go to be with Christ. Whoa, I'd really love that. But you know, I'd like to stay here so I can minister to the churches, care for them, do more of the ministry that God has given to me. Um, boy, I'm hard-pressed between the two. He's got two good choices, service for the Lord or dying and going to be with the Lord. And he, has the, and he views going to be with the Lord as a very positive thing. 2 Corinthians 5.8, yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body, as his body dies and is in the earth, and at home with the Lord. His soul goes to, be, goes to heaven to be with God, to be with the Lord Jesus. So that's a positive view of death. Revelation 14, 13, I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. That is, there's a reward. Hebrews 2.15 talks about the purpose of Christ coming to earth, and it said one aspect of that was to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's us. We are delivered from that. The Lord delivered us from this fear of death. So we shouldn't have any fear of death. You know, um, let's see, several years ago now, we had the attacks on 9-11, and I had a ticket to go from Phoenix to New York City on um, 9-18, just one day to the week after, uh, or one week to the day right after that. And um, it had to do with uh, getting uh, some final uh, kind of um, legal negotiation done with the copyright issues for the ESV Bible. And uh, there were four of us going. I was going to go to Chicago, meet three others, and we were going to fly out there. And 
um, I thought, well, um, I've got a ticket to go, and it's what the Lord wants me to do, so might as well go. But it is amazing, and that plane that was almost empty, how nervous most of the people were. Just a great fear of death. And uh, drinking too much alcohol, and just um, no peace at all. But as a believer, I just thought, well, okay, if I die, I go to be with the Lord. I mean, I didn't take it. I mean, it wasn't, I'd miss Margaret. <laughs> um, so I don't mean that casually, but really there was a, there, there's a piece about that. And I'm, I'm, uh, I, I really, as I, I mean, I, I, I would like to stay around and finish up this ESV study Bible and see it published in October. And, uh, but yeah, I'd like to go to be with the Lord, too. Do, do you feel that in your own heart? Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's the perspective that God wants us to have, not to have this fear of death that is so captivating the world. Um, do you want to talk about that for a minute? Fear of death? If you, if you believe you're going to be with Jesus, is there still a fear of death element? Yeah. Oh, I forgot your name. What's your name over here? Vince. Hold on, there's a microphone here. I love the way uh, David put it. He said that though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Oh, yeah. Like the truck comes around and runs you over, but the shadow just hits you. Yeah. And and the thing struck me this morning when you were talking is about the spirit. Adam and Eve died spiritually, Mm. and... We will never die spiritually. Mm-hmm. We're yeah. going to die physically, but yeah. we're going to... And then eventually we'll have a metaphysical body. We'll be raised from the dead. Good. We won't die spiritually. Okay, Vince. Yeah, good. And that's a good verse in Psalm 23, too. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Anything else on fear of death? Um, Christians not fearing death. Bob? I was going to say, Wayne, I've heard it said that a person doesn't fear death. They just don't want to be there when it happens. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I don't know. I can't think of anything to say to that. (laughs) That wasn't a spiritual comment. I know. It's just a little lighthearted interlude. Okay. Uh, Go ahead, E.G. You know, I don't. I, I think there's a bit of an issue here in that it's not so much the fear of death, but it's typically the pain that you have to go yeah, through to yeah, get there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or that, that most yeah. normally accompanies yeah. dying. Yeah. And I don't... Thank you, E.G., because I do not want to minimize that, and that's, that's real. And that's an experience of suffering, and it's an experience of a trial and a testing that we just... You know, we hope it doesn't happen. We trust the Lord for strength to give us grace to go through it. Um, but I want to distinguish that from the idea of dying itself, where there's just an, a deep fear in the world because they have no one, they have no one, they have no idea. It's just uncertainty. And I think Christians not fearing death can be a wonderful testimony um, to to the world that ha- that just doesn't know. Yeah, John. Okay, back here. Yeah, Todd. Um, I think uh, similar to the pain, uh, the physical pain is, you know, uh, and everybody in here that's a parent understands that is the pain of leaving 
people behind, yep. especially a younger child, or yes. you know, yeah, uh, what they're going to face, especially in this changing world. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Good. Th thank you for both of those. Good, good comments, John. Since it's Mother's Day, I was thinking back to my mom yep. when I lost my brother. Yeah. And her attitude towards his death, which was, I'm going to see him again. Yes. And I, and I thought to when I went through the miracle a couple of years ago, yeah. <laughs> what my thoughts were. And yep. my thoughts were pretty much what Paul said. If one, my days are numbered anyway. Yep. God's, and God knows the day I'm going to leave this earth. And there are days when I thought, well, I get to go home. Yep. But you want to stay here for your family, for your church, and for whatever. Yep. Yep. And it's just, I have no fear of it. That's wonderful. John, thank you. That is so, because you, I mean, you looked it square in the eye with that extremely advanced cancer. And we're so thankful. Yeah. Good. Thanks for that. Uh, so we face the idea of our own death, not with fear, but with joy, at prospect of going to be with Christ. But then, uh, kind of related to what John just said a minute ago uh, about his brother, um, the death of Christian friends and relatives, there is genuine sorrow, but it is sorrow mixed with joy. And we see this pattern a number of cases in the New Testament for instance, in Acts 8-2, there was a story of Stephen, who was this uh, young preacher that had great effectiveness in bearing witness to the resurrection of Christ. And just many, many, many people were coming to Christ. No one could withstand the wisdom with which he spoke. And, uh, the, uh, of course, he was Jewish, and all the Jerusalem church was Jewish, but there were... There was another contingent of Jews there, Jewish leaders and Jewish others, not leaders, with them. And they were enraged at this, and they were opposed to what he said. And finally, a bunch of them took them, kind of like a mob action, dragged him out and uh, surrounded him in the street and, and began to throw stones at him uh, to stone him to death. And as he was dying, he cried out and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he said, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. I mean... People were looking on, had just this very evident testimony of the fact that he was going right to heaven. Well, then, what was the response of the believers, including the apostles who had walked with Jesus for those three years? What was the response of those believers when Stephen died? Look at this, Acts 8:2. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. They were weeping, lamenting. They were sorrowful. Sorrowful that he'd been stoned. Sorrowful about the suffering he'd gone through. And sorrowful because they missed him. He died. And so <clears throat> this, this is an example of in the midst of the greatest measure of faith and the expansion of the church, and the presence of the apostles themselves, still great sorrow at the death of a loved one. I think that tells us it's not wrong to grieve. It's not wrong to grieve, and to grieve deeply when we feel sadness at the death of a loved one who has gone to be with the Lord. They knew. They knew he was in heaven. They'd seen with their own eyes Jesus ascend up into heaven, 
Some of them probably seen Stephen being stoned and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. But they made great lamentation over him. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, Paul says, We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that means who have died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. He doesn't say that you may not grieve, but he says that you may not grieve in the same way as others do who have no hope. They grieve with a bitterness that knows no joy. We grieve with a grief that's mixed with joy that our loved ones have gone to be with the Lord. So it's, it's, a, mixed, it's a mixed thing. Psalm 116, verse 15, um, an Old Testament verse on this, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. That is, the, the Lord himself draws believers to himself, takes them to himself, brings them back into close fellowship with himself, and it's precious to him, even though he recognizes and understands the sorrow that we feel as well. So there's sorrow mixed with joy. I think, um, I think also that um, Um, what shall I say? The, the, the amount of sorrow and joy, the mixture of sorrow and joy might vary according to the circumstance. That is, um, um, I remember when my grandmother was very, very old and weak and she was just praying to go to be with the Lord. We felt sorrow at her funeral and, and missed her, but but, but we felt joy that, <clears throat> in a way, the Lord had answered her prayer to take her to heaven. And, um, and yet, many of you walked with us through that very difficult time three years ago when our daughter-in-law, Rachel, just died suddenly in an auto accident. And the amount of sorrow we felt then was, it wasn't that there was no joy that she was in heaven, but it was a great, a great proportion of sorrow that seemed overwhelming for days and, and sometimes weeks after that. And am I, am I making sense in, in, in saying this? Sometimes people who have gone through a long struggle with much suffering and they long to be released from that and to be in the Lord's presence. Um, uh, we can be thankful that they are released, though surely we will still feel sorrow at the loss of fellowship. So that, that proportion of joy and sorrow may vary according to the circumstance. I hope it's, hope it's right to say that. I hope I, I'm not... Um, but I think that is what happens in, in the ordinary course of life. Anybody want to just say something more about... Okay, okay let's, uh, let's go on. Then, then what about the death of unbelievers? How should we think of the death of unbelievers? We also, in this case, feel sorrow, but it is not mixed with the joy of assurance of salvation. And so this, this is a very much more difficult situation. Uh, Paul talks about, now this isn't really about death, but, uh, but he's talking about how he's thinking about the, his Jewish kinsmen who have rejected Christ. He says in Romans 9, 1 and 2, uh, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit 
that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I, I could wish that I myself were cursed. He doesn't quite say that. It'd be kind of in a strange and unusual Greek construction, saying I, I could almost wish that I were cursed and cut off from Christ so much as he loved them. That, uh, and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kindred, kinsmen, according to the flesh. They have a zeal for God. It's not according to knowledge, he goes on to say. And so there's a sorrow, but not mixed with that joy of assurance that they're in heaven, which, which is such a comfort at the time of sorrow. Um, and so this is, a, this is a difficult situation for us. Uh, I think it's a situation in which also the scripture gives us guidance. Um, I don't, I, I'm just, I want to say this carefully, but when an unbeliever has died, we often do not have absolute certainty that the person has persisted in refusal to trust Christ all the way to the point of death. Now, maybe we do, maybe we were with the person at the point of death, but often we weren't. Often we were distant and we may not have been there for the last few hours or days. The knowledge of one's impending death will often bring about genuine heart-searching on the part of the dying person. And so, I want to say that with caution, but it is true that at the end of life, sometimes people come to the point where they remember and they've been thinking about a, a Billy Graham message that they've seen on TV or, or, a, or a gospel message they've heard and they have not cried out to Christ for forgiveness, but they do uh, sometimes near the end of life. And that, that may be the case. Nevertheless, after a non-Christian has died, I think it would be wrong to indicate to others that we think that the person has gone to heaven. This would give misleading information and false assurance and diminish the urgency for those remaining to trust in Christ. So what do we do then? Well, it's often helpful to recall the good qualities that you remember about the person's life in any case. And, and we have here the example of David when he heard about the death of Saul. Now, I said a couple weeks ago, I'm not sure what the situation was spiritually with Saul, but Saul certainly did not have an admirable record of conduct in the last several years of his life. He threw a spear at David to try to kill him. He pursued David again and again, trying to kill him, put him to death, though David had done nothing wrong and was only seeking his good. He consulted a, 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 a medium or a witch, um, and uh, he was always just thinking about himself trying to kill David time after time, but when he died, what does David do? <clears throat> he, he utters this lament in 2 Samuel 1 that talks about the good things in Saul's life. Isn't this interesting? 2 Samuel 1, 19-25, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen, Saul and Jonathan. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold upon your apparel, how the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. So David doesn't, doesn't turn to say how evil Saul was to try to kill him. He just says, it's a time of mourning. Uh, for, and he mentions the good qualities that Saul has, that Saul had shown. And you know, when you go to a, a funeral for unbelievers, that is 
often what people are doing anyway, aren't they? They're, they're, they're talking about the person's kindness or the person's sense of humor or the other good things. And I think that's appropriate uh, that we recall and, and think of as examples the things that have happened in unbelievers' lives. Okay, I'm going to go on. What happens when people die? What actually happens? Well, the souls of believers go immediately into the presence of God. Our bodies remain on the earth and are buried in the ground, but our souls go immediately into God's presence. Paul says we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. He wants to depart and be with Christ. That means go to heaven. Uh, Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. That's today, though the thief's body uh, died and, and hung on the cross. And, uh, and so the Bible does not teach the doctrine of purgatory, and uh, we have to respectfully differ here with our Roman Catholic friends. In Roman Catholic teaching, purgatory is the place where the souls of believers go to be pure, further purified from sin until they're ready to be admitted to heaven. The sufferings of purgatory are given to God in substitute for the punishment for sins that believers should have received in time but did not. Now, the Catholic Church supports this, not from what we accept as canonical scripture, but in the writings of the Apocrypha, those things between, books between the Old and New Testament that, that we talked about a long time ago, but uh, that the Roman Catholic Church accepts as scripture. The Jewish people at the time of the New Testament did not. Jesus and the apostles did not quote the Apocrypha as scripture, uh, even though they quoted the, our Old Testament over 295 times. And, uh, and the Roman Catholic Church didn't declare the Apocrypha official be, to be scripture until, um, I think, 1547. Uh, but it does take the Apocrypha as scripture. And the passage that it gets this teaching from is in 2 Maccabees, a history of the story of the Maccabean family and their uh, rebellion against the uh, Greek empires and kingdoms that had been ruling them. And so after one battle, <clears throat> it talks about Judas Maccabeus, who was the leader of the Maccabean family at that time. I'm, I was going to track down the date of this. This is 2nd century B.C. approximately. On the next day, Judas and his men went back to take up the bodies of the fallen and to bring them back to lie with their kinsmen. And what did they find? Under these people who had fallen in battle, under the tunic of every one of the dead, they found sacred tokens of the idols of Jamnia, which the law forbids the Jews to wear. And it became clear to all, this was why these men had fallen. They were keeping secret idols in their clothing. And so they turned to prayer, beseeching that the sin which had been committed might be wholly blotted out. So they're praying for forgiveness of sins for people who have died. And the noble Judas also took up a collection, of man by man, to the amount of 2,000 drachmas of silver, and sent it to Jerusalem to provide for a sin offering. Whoa, <laughs> he's taking money to send to the temple for a sin offering. In doing this, he acted very well and honorably, taking account of the resurrection. If he had not been expecting that they would rise again, it would have been foolish to pray for the dead. I'm, I'm kind of skipping over here to go quickly. But if he was looking to the splendid reward laid up for those who fall asleep, it was a holy and pious thought. Therefore, he made atonement. The Greek is exilasmos, propitiation. He made atonement for the dead that they might be delivered from their sin. So here we have prayers for forgiveness of sins of already people who have died, prayer for the dead, and actually money given to help them along in that sin offering. Yeah, if that were part of the Bible, that would support the doctrine of praying for people to be forgiven after they've, after they've died and 
and even giving money for offerings for that. And the Roman Catholic Church has developed that doctrine and does believe in the doctrine of purgatory. We have to say, this, uh, this contradicts what the Bible says about going immediately, dying and going to be with the Lord. It contradicts what the Bible says about uh, all the propitiation for our sin being made by Christ, not by people making offerings or prayers in this life. It's just a whole different view. And we just don't accept it as scripture, but there it is. They look at some other passages. Um, Matthew 12:32. whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. And Roman Catholic interpreters will say, well, if it says people will not be forgiven who sin against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven in the age to come, then that means that maybe some people will be forgiven in the age to come. And my response is, to take a verse that says something is not going to happen, to argue that it is going to happen, doesn't seem to me a good use of the verse. Uh, it just says it won't, won't happen. That doesn't mean it might happen. And again, uh, talking about rewards, if anyone's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Or uh, Paul's talking about the person's works being burned up, not the person being burned or suffering. So again, I think that in 1 Corinthians 3.15, that's not a good passage to support purgatory. You've read that for your whole life, and you haven't thought, oh, there's purgatory. Uh, so I think those are weak evidences. <clears throat> and I don't, I don't, uh, so I don't agree with that. Um, the next thing is the Bible doesn't teach the doctrine of soul sleep. And this is another <clears throat> kind of idea that a few people have held in the history of the church. The idea that <clears throat> when you die, you don't go into heaven to be with the Lord, you go to a state of unconscious existence, and the next thing you'll know is Christ returning and raising you to eternal life. And it's supported from these verses that talk about death as sleeping. Jesus says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. Or 1 Corinthians 15, 6, uh, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are alive, though some have fallen asleep. But I think the right understanding of those verses is they use sleep just as a metaphor for death. And those other verses about Today you will be with me in paradise. I want to depart and be with Christ. That's far better. Those are very clear on saying that when we die, we go immediately into God's presence. You know, see, what happened was we had a little kind of casual talking about these earlier topics, and then I'm looking at the clock, and I'm thinking, I don't want this to carry over next week. So I'm going on to try to finish the outline. Are you bear with me? Okay. C. Did Old Testament believers enter immediately into God's presence? Yes, I think so. Here are a couple examples. Genesis 5:24. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. I think he went to be with the Lord. 2 Kings 2:11. Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Looks like God is taking him up to heaven. David says, I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I think he's looking for continual fellowship with the Lord. So I think, yes, Old Testament believers entered immediately into heaven and enjoyed fellowship with God upon their death, though there isn't a lot of testimony to that. There's some. Point D. Where am I in the outline? We shouldn't, should we pray for the dead? No, we shouldn't pray for the dead. No, to pray for the dead is simply to pray for something that God has told us has already been decided. Rather, heavenly rewards for believers or eternal punishment for unbelievers, to pray for the dead would encourage false hope that the destinies of people might be changed after they die. I mean, wh why do we pray for the dead? If they're going to be, in, be with Christ, well, what do they need? 
And if they haven't gone to be with Christ, nothing's going to change. No matter how much you pray, it's not going to change. The idea of praying for the dead really is floating around in the atmosphere, out in our culture, I think as a kind of a leftover from the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory. They do pray for the dead and give offerings to the dead and ask for masses to be said for the dead in order that they could be released from purgatory. But if we don't believe that, then surely we shouldn't be praying for those who have died. What happens when people die? Number two, the souls of unbelievers go immediately to eternal punishment. I'm going to skip just to um, um, Hebrews 9.27. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And there are some other passages like that as well. But that brings me to the end of the outline. Now, that lets me have... Oh, we have four or five minutes left. So good, Pammy. Hold on, here, here we go. Occasionally, when I'm having my prayer time <laughs> with the Lord, I'll just, I'll say to him, and Lord, would you please tell my dad hi and that I miss him and that I look <laughs> forward to seeing him again. And uh, um, is that wrong to do? I don't ever talk to my dad in, in prayer, <laughs> but I, no, but just, I, and I, you know, I've maybe done that four or five times in the last 10 years, <laughs> but you know, just when I'm kind of overwhelmed with missing him or, um, or whatever, I'll just say, I'll talk to the Lord about it. And then I'll just say, would you just tell my dad hi for me and be at the gate when I get there, because I can't wait to see him too. Is that wrong? And you can speak truth to me, Wayne. Teach me. I want to know. <laughs> I think you can talk to the Lord about anything, can't you? And it's a desire of your heart. I don't see anything wrong with that, Pammy. I, I haven't thought about it before, but my, my instinct, you're talking to Jesus. Yeah. I want to be really careful that we not come to the point of praying to the dead or praying to the saints or to those who have died. And there's this instance where Saul asked this medium to conjure up Samuel, and he lost his kingdom because of it in 1 Samuel. Um, so I don't want to go that way. But um, there have been times when... Something has happened in a ministry situation that particularly was taught to me by one of my professors at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. He's, he's gone to be with the Lord now, and I've just kind of smiled and thought, I wonder if he's watching and seeing me teach that. Uh, or it was taught to me by another pastor that, um, that was... Uh, was a great help in my life previously. And I just kind of, I, I looked at a situation and I just kind of had this big smile. I think, I wonder if he's just watching this, but I haven't ever said, hey, you watching this? <laughs> no. <laughs> so I haven't gone to that, that point and I want to be really cautious about that, but, uh, but I don't, um, without having thought about this before, um, my, my first reaction is I can't see anything wrong with that. 
Okay, Rose. I just wanted to comment about the purgatory. Yeah. And it being in Second Maccabees. You have to hold it a little closer. Uh, it being in Second Maccabees. Yes, yes, um, yes. But isn't it in the uh, Catholic Bible? It is in it the is. Catholic Bible. And yeah. that's why they believe it. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Maccabees is part of this Apocrypha? Yes, it is. It is. And those are those books which did not warrant getting into uh, the Protestant Bible? Right. Is that correct? Yeah. So how then did it get into the Catholic Bible? Yeah. It kind of was, a real quick answer, um, Those the Jewish people kept a lot of their history after Malachi, after the Old Testament ended. They kept writing down their history. Um, but they didn't, they themselves did not count it, the like the Bible or the words of God or Book of the Covenant, they just counted it as their history. But I think the key was in 404 A.D. when uh, Jerome prepared the Latin Vulgate translation, under the direction of the Pope, he included these books after the Old Testament. And so when everybody's speaking Latin, it was kind of in their Bibles anyway, and then it got more and more incorporated. And then after the Reformation came along and Martin Luther was objecting to purgatory and this idea you can earn your salvation, well, they found support for it in the books of the Maccabees and other things in the Apocrypha. And so... I think that explains a lot of why the Roman Catholic Church said, well, we're going to count this as scripture. And is it true about the book of Judith also? The book of Judith? Judith. Yeah, that's part of it too. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to make one comment uh, with regard to uh, um, being at the funeral of non-believers. Yeah. Uh, I have been uh, to many funerals. I have never been to a funeral where the relatives uh, did not assume that their loved one was not in heaven. Yeah. Uh, they will refer to them as looking down at us. Um, so I, d I don't think that these people who we say are not saved yeah. actually believe uh, that they are going to hell. Yeah. I understand that, Rose. And I think that my responsibility, and we've been to many funerals of uh, well, a number of funerals where people didn't seem to be, uh, be believers. Uh, our responsibility is just to be there and be kind. I'm not, I'm not called upon to. I'm not called upon to correct anybody's wrong ideas. No, at that I am point, not so, either. Yeah. I am simply making uh, a comment. But the, but the other thing that often there is opportunity to do is to um, is to point to the words of Jesus, where he says, "I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me." Though he were dead, yet shall he live. Uh, and that's in John 11. And those words are really appropriate at that time, I think, too. Okay, good. Thanks. Yeah, over here. Oh, yeah, what's your name? Uh, my name is John. John. Um, a question that uh, I thought about a couple of years ago. I heard a pastor by the name of Bob Mumford teach, how do I die as a Christian? Mm-hmm. How do I die? Mm-hmm. What do I do? And uh, when I watched my dad die a couple of years ago, it was kind of neat to be able to speak scripture to him yep. and talk about that. But when it comes to me, what happens to me practically? Yeah. For five years, I was involved with the financial counseling ministry along with Dave and Marge and a couple of others in here. And um, you teach people how to budget and so forth. But what happens when you get to the end of life? What happens to your loved ones? Yeah. Do you have health care power of attorney? All that stuff yeah. affects everybody that's left and can help ease through the process of death. Yeah, good. So the scripture doesn't specifically say how we die. It talks about what to do when we're born. Yeah. 
what to do, how to live, relate to your spouse and your kids. Yeah. But how do I die as a Christian? Well, what you say is really helpful because, you know, if we don't have fear of death, then we don't have to avoid talking about it honestly. But we can make wise plans. And I think that's a really good application, too. So thank you for that. Okay. Anne. Uh, Anne, yeah, Anne. <laughs> I'm just curious who wrote the Apocrypha, and, and I've never heard of the Book of Judith. Who wrote them? Um, Jewish people, kind of recording the way God was working in their history from about 425 or 435 B.C. when Haggai, Zechariah, when Malachi came to an end and after Esther came to an end, those last books in the Old Testament, then the, there were rabbis and they were recording things and there were scribes and there were priests and they were recording what was happening to the Jewish people in those centuries. But uniformly, and I've got some evidence for this in chapter 3 of my systematic theology where I talk about the canon, uniformly those Jewish people thought that the Holy Spirit-inspiring prophecy had come to an end with Malachi. And, uh, and Josephus, the Jewish historian writing in 95 AD, reflecting mainstream Judaism, said from the, the, the end of Esther, basically, he says from the time of Hashuerus until the present time, um, the complete record has been kept, but it has not been deemed worthy of equal credit with the earlier writings. That's in his Against Appian 141. It's kind of a famous uh, citation. And so the Jewish people didn't count it as scripture. Jesus never quoted as scripture. The New Testament never quoted as scripture, though it was known. And, uh, and so I don't think we should count it as scripture either. Okay, well, I'm going to have to quit because... Everybody hasn't heard Daryl has to go hear Daryl. So let's try this. I learned from this, uh, my Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art mine. Uh, Debbie Nevins gave me a little while ago something I've been using on these hymns, a book called Then Sings My Soul. Actually, Debbie and Rick gave it to me, but I think it was Debbie Moore. <laughs> Did you pick it out? Yes. Um, Rick had something to do with paying for it, I think. <laughs> Then Sings My Soul, 300 of the world's greatest hymn stories. And I found out that William Featherstone wrote my Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art mine, when he was 16 years old. Lived in Canada, and the book says little, little, little else is known about him. He died when he was 26. But let's sing this if you want to. It's a good, uh, I think, a good hymn. I'll see you next week. And I just want to say once again, Garth and Sandy, your last Sunday with us, right? So wish you... Goodbye, and the Lord be with you, and we're going to miss you a lot. Okay, see you all next week.